This is episode 513 for July 2018. And you're listening to the Spider-Man Crawl Space Podcast, and I'm your host, Brad Douglas. And that opening song is Heroes by David Bowie. And it just so happens that song came out in 1977, and the Spider-Man newspaper strip also premiered in 1977, so I thought it was a perfect intro for this episode. Before we get on with our interview, I want to give some thank you to people that support this podcast and our website through Patreon each and every month, and they help us pay the bills and keep us online and streaming more content. So thank you to Brian, Craig, Christopher, Andrew, John, Stephen, Michael, Federico, Stuart, Ricky, Thomas, Nick, Laura, Alex, Alex L., David, Michael, and Swift, sir. Thank you, everybody, for supporting us each and every month. If you would like to support something you like, which is hopefully this podcast on our website, log on to SpiderManCrawlspace.com. Look on the right-hand side for the Patreon button. I actually put a new one up there. It's got a little spider head in it. So click on that. And also at the bottom of every news article, there is a link for Patreon. So you can do that. Or you can do a one-time donation in our PayPal pot. There's a button on the right-hand side also on our website there. All right, let's get on with the interview. This is a really good one. Oh, we come to heroes. Hey, Crawl Spacers, welcome to an interview episode. Our guest on this podcast is Bruce Canwell. He's the editor of the Spider-Man Newspaper Reprint Collections. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you very much. Good to be here, Brad. So before we get into the newspaper reprints, let's talk a little bit about your first exposure to Spider-Man. And doing my research, I saw that you had a quote about how you got in trouble in the third grade due to Spider-Man. Tell, let, let's start the show off like that. <laughs> well, that's a very good research. Uh, go. Actually, I'll give you a little preface by that. Okay. My, my first real exposure to Spider-Man was the 1967 cartoon show. Yes. So, yes, I'll tell you right up front, I am 58 years old. <laughs> I was born in 1959. So that means I was at a perfect age for that year because not only did Spider-Man debut on ABC TV, but the Fantastic Four from yeah. Hanna-Barbera debuted as well. Mm-hmm. And um, I was mighty interested in both. And so between that and in the old days when uh, you would go to the barber shop on the corner for a haircut and the barber shop uh, the bar would always have a table with comics on it. Yep. Uh, there were a couple beat-up Spider-Man comics issues 53 and 54, which is uh, the very first time when Dr. Octopus winds up being a boarder with Aunt May. Oh, yeah. So, you know, Classics. Peter walks through the door at the end of 53, and, and, and Aunt May's going, Oh, Peter, dear, I've, I've taken a new border. Meet this lovely Dr. Octopus. And there's, of course, Peter going, like, with his yeah. jaw banging off the floor, and, and Stan going, To be continued. That's funny. You should, uh, you so, should get a Spider-Man comic yeah, from a right. barber shop, because one of my first ones was issue 185, where he allegedly graduated college. Right, I got that from a. It was from a beat up barber too. I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know if barbers stock comics anymore or not. I, it hooked, I, hooked me and I, you. I have to tell you, I, I no longer have enough hair left, so I could go to a barber shop <laughs> to tell you. Well, we're bonding already. I'm in the same boat. There, there you go. But uh, so at any rate, it turned out I was in the third grade, and uh, they wanted us. They were going to give us a free reading time, and they said, "Bring something from home for you to read." All right. And I said, "Great." So I brought Spider-Man fifty-three and fifty-four, and in those days, comics were were not well thought of in the general yeah. public. They were considered garbage literature, and you know there was 
you know, some teachers, I'm sure, could remember the days when, uh, in the 50s, when uh, there had been concerns about comics contributing to juvenile delinquency and the whole Frederick Wortham thing, Seduction right. of the Innocent. And uh, so I st- uh, here comes the reading time, and I innocently take out my Spider-Man 53 and 54, and it's only a few minutes, and the teacher calls me up to my desk, <laughs> and she said... When you go home for lunch today, because I could do that in those days, I lived very close to the elementary school that I I, I went to, Mm -hmm. she said, make sure you take those home with you because they're not allowed in school. (laughs) And I was like, oh, man. And now the the funny coda to that is that decades later, when my brother's girl, my niece, Mm -hmm. was roughly the same age I was, probably third or fourth grade, they had to do a school project on something they had read, and they had to do uh, some sort of physical model or diorama or something about it, as well as, as give an oral report. On mm-hmm. And my niece chose Fantastic Four 51, This Man, This Monster, <laughs> and took a thing, uh, a thing action figure and built a Lego uh, portal oh, to the cool. Mega Stone. Cool. And built a couple of LEDs and had some sound effects to go with it. And she got an A-plus for reading comics, <laughs> and I got sent home at lunchtime. You know, it's funny how comics have been so accepted now. I go to my daughter's book fair, and Spider-Man's everywhere. Like, they're, they're yeah. selling Spider-Man and everything. It's, it's hysterical yeah. how much it's been accepted in 50 years. Well, so. that's what uh, I... I, I tell the story now. My wife knows nothing about comics. <laughs> and so when, you know, obviously we see the big superhero movies, the summer and, and winter yeah. Kent Poles and, and such. And, uh, and yet I will point out to her things like, yes. oh, um, say, Road to Perdition or mm-hmm. Red or something. And I'll say, see that? Based on a comic. See that? Based on a comic. Mm-hmm. And she's reached the point where she rolls her eyes and goes, I know, I know. <laughs> Everything's based on comics. And I tell her, not yet, but we're getting We're there. getting and close. It really is true. We, we really, um, we are the next frontier. We're sort of taking yeah. over. Yeah. So with the, the, those early Amazing issues, did you follow him throughout your life? Did you always have a subscription to Amazing Spider-Man? Well, I, uh, I did do subscriptions for one year back yeah. in the 1970s in the days when they would send you your comics folded in half yep in a brown paper bag in a brown paper wrapper, <laughs> a wrapper yep. exactly right yep and uh but but i basically was lucky that i lived in a college town mm-hmm. that had a wonderful newsstand like a big city style boston new york style newsstand every magazine you wanted mm-hmm. uh whole walls of paperback books newspapers from around the country and so I had that. I had a little mom and pop variety store next, nice. uh, literally across the street from it. And down the road, I had a uh, a drugstore. Steve Engelhart, in uh, one of his early oh. Captain America issues, says, "You know the place in town that never takes its old comics off stands? <laughs> that was that drugstore." <laughs> so, so I had three very good sources. And of course, whenever my family would travel and we'd go to a different town, mm-hmm. I would find an excuse to try to get to some store. That's cool. See what they had for comics. And every once in a while, the different town would get their comics on an earlier day than my town would get them. Right. And that was like a treasure trove. <laughs> so I, I walked out. I still remember yeah. walking out of uh, the town my mother's parents lived in, my maternal grandparents. I walked out of a drugstore there with a copy of 
Steranko's first Captain America issue. Mm. And, of course, I idolized Steranko. Nice. Um, and uh, Neil Adams' X-Men 59, I believe. <clears throat> yeah, end of his towards the end. Yeah. Yes. Nice. And, uh, and it was a big deal because I was at that store when comics went from 12 cents to 15 cents. <laughs> so I had walked in thinking, oh, I'll have, you know, uh, like 40 cents with me, and that'll be enough for three comics. And I didn't even look at the price, and I walked <laughs> up, and they said, that'll be 45 cents. Oh, man. And I shamefacedly had to say, stay right here. And I went out. <laughs> Fortunately, that day, my mother was, like, out in the car waiting for me. So I right. went out and said, guess what? I need, you know, whatever I needed. I oh, needed, like, funny. you know, nine more cents or something. And she right. said, well, my, I still remember my mother saying, why? And I said, the price went up. <laughs> but I had to have those comics. If you were a kid in 2018, you, your mom would have to take a loan for four bucks a pop, I, you know? <laughs> I, that, is, that is very much true. And I think that is one of the big challenges yeah. from a business perspective that comics face today is when I yeah. was a, a boy, they were cheap entertainment. You could yep. find, you could redeem bottles off the street and earn enough money to, you know, go buy a couple comics. They were impulse and buys. They. Yeah. You know, when you look at at DVDs or streaming video, the the inexpensiveness of mm-hmm. of buying or or streaming a whole season of something, yep. you know, the per episode cost is so minuscule. Yeah. And now today, here we are buying comics at, at a much higher price, and you know, right. it's, it's a it's a huge paradigm shift from what you know, exactly. from what I grew up with. So true. Same here, because I, I was a kid of the '80s, and I they were sixty cents when I was a kid. That's right. Yeah. Yep. And it, but talk about your first exposure to the newspaper strip of Spider-Man when, in 77 when it came out. Were you there from the beginning, or talk about your uh, first introduction I, to it? I was always, believe it or not, I was always a sporadic newspaper strip reader. Yeah, same. Uh, my the, the strip ran here in New England. The strip ran in the Boston Globe. Mm-hmm. And I was a, all throughout my schooling years, I was a devoted Globey. I was a Globe reader. Yeah, uh, but by the time the strip debuted in 1977, that was the year I graduated high school. So of mm-hmm. course things were getting hectic. <clears throat> yeah, and uh, for a variety of different reasons. And so uh, just about the time the strip was starting, I started only sporadically reading the Globe. Yeah. So I would check in with it and say, okay, you know, because I would look at all the comics on the comics page and say, okay, what are they doing with Spider-Man? And of course there was Stan and there was John mm-hmm. uh, doing the art. And those were my guys. Yes. I mean, you know, Spider-Man 53, 54, and when I started reading regularly, it was Spider-Man number 63, mm-hmm. which is the start of the the original Vulture comes back and takes retakes his mantle from Blackie Drago. Right. And, you know, that was, you know, just that beautiful Jim Mooney was doing layouts, and, mm-hmm. and then Ramita came in and did, you know, his detailed finishes. Just so beautiful. Yeah. So that was like, you know, an old friend, but it would be like, I see an old friend and I'd see him for a couple of days reading the script, and then I'd be gone for, you know, two, three, four weeks, and then I'd come back for another couple of days. So it became almost like the way some people would watch a soap opera. Mm -hmm. I'm going to look in on Monday and I'll look at a week from, I'll look a week from Wednesday and I'll figure out what's going on in between times. If you had to catch up, you'd you'd go to the Sunday strip. That would be the the, kind of the recap. Yeah. That's exactly right. You could see what was going on in the Sundays. And it was in color. So (laughs) exactly right. Yeah. And so, um, so I, I was always a sporadic reader. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, when I would see, you know, looking at the comics news sites, the various ones, everyone has their favorite, but every once in a while a story would run about the newspaper strip. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, oh, well, let me let me read this and let me see what's going on. Right. Yeah, you know, in more recent years, in you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, like that, um, I would try to see what was going on, see what people were saying, and and go, hmm, isn't that interesting? And I, by then, of course, Larry Lieber was drawing the strip, as he right. had for so many years. Right. And it was like, oh, my goodness, Larry who did one of my very favorite jobs. He collaborated with John Romita on Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 5. The Parents, yep. The Parents, yeah. exactly right, with mm-hmm. that beautiful, beautiful Romita cover. Exactly. It's yellow with all those faces floating, yeah. yes. Spider-Man standing yeah. back to us looking yeah. tortured, which, beautiful. of course, he's, he's an expert at doing. But the people uh, on my yeah, website call those awesome. faces of guilt. <laughs> 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 Anytime there's floating, there are actually floating heads of guilt. I think that's referred to. <laughs> I I had a similar experience. I I uh, my grandparents took the paper, the St. Louis Post Dispatch, sure, and uh, they dropped the strip in the late '90s, and I I that ticked me off. So it, there was many years I couldn't read it. And I'm glad that they they put them online. You can read them daily now. Right. But uh, as a kid, I I re- read it as much as I could, but I like you. The Sunday, the one caught you up. So exactly right. Talk a bit about the Library of American Comics. It, it launched in 2007. You helped launch that. Yes, that's correct. We went. We were in business in 2007. In fact, it was mm-hmm. this month in 2007. Oh wow! Because our very first book came out, we rushed it out of the printer and did a rush ship um, across the Pacific so that we could have boxes of it ready uh, for the San Diego Comic-Con that wow. year. What was the first book? Uh, our first book was Terry and the Pirates, Volume mm. 1, by Milton Kniff. And uh, if for those people who are interested not just in Spider-Man, but in the history of the medium, Terry and the Pirates and Milton Kniff are must-read. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is Terry and the Pirates is one of the, the absolute milestones in comic book history and so yeah. much of the storytelling that the storytelling methods that have passed through generations stem from Milton Kniff and one of the people who was most influenced by Milton Kniff and Terry and the Pirates is John Romita Sr. Mm, yeah. And in fact, when John does Issues. I think it's one nine and one ten. I know it's either one oh eight and one oh nine or one nine and one ten. Mm-hmm. But when we uh, we flash back to Flash Thompson's time in Vietnam, uh-huh. and that's the introduction of Shashan. Right. That was Romita's idea, and he was doing the entire story as a tribute to oh. Kniff and Terry and the Pirates. Very cool. So and, and so y- that's that's where we launched, and since then. We do roughly 20 books a year of various wow. things. We do Dick Tracy. We do Little Orphan Annie. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have done the Alex Raymond Flash Gordons. We have done uh, older, more obscure strips that are still wonderful things mm-hmm. like Polly and Her Pals um, and The yeah. Gumps, uh, Scorchy Smith. Uh, one of my very favorite books we've done is a full collection of, of Scorchy Smith by Noel Sickles, who is another brilliant wow. Brilliant artist. So, did you found and, found the uh, is that the word found the company or fa- <laughs> founded? Well, that's the word. The, the, the company is the the company is the driver of the company. The Stan Lee of the okay. Library of American <laughs> Comics is yeah. is Dean Mullaney. Okay, and 
and those who grew up in in our era mm-hmm. would remember Dean's name just as they might mine because in the old days when every Marvel comic had a letters page right Dean and I would both show up uh, on the letters page oh, on cool. a regular basis and Dean was in New York I was up in Maine at the time I'm a born and bred Mainer mm-hmm. and so Dean and I would read each other's letters like we read everybody else's <laughs> letters so our names were familiar but we had no contact with one another oh that's funny and and Dean went on in the 1980s to found a, uh, an independent comics company called Eclipse Comics, mm-hmm. uh, which did a lot of fine work. And so their very first thing was a, a, a graphic novel, before we had that term, by Paul Galassi and Don McGregor called Sabre. Mm-hmm. And it was going for $5, and he was soliciting by mail. And I was like, $5 for a comic? What are you, crazy? <laughs> Little did I know what the future would hold. Right. But I said, hmm, you know, I really love Galacy's work, and I really admire Don McGregor. If I'm going to go, you know, if I'm going to spend $5 on a book, that's what I'm going to spend. So as it turned out, I was one of Dean's first customers. Well, that's cool. But again, it was a transaction. I sent him the money. He sent me the book. We still had no interaction. <laughs> Dean got out of the business for uh, uh, quite a while uh, for some family reasons in the 1990s, but those reasons changed, and in the mid-2000s, he was thinking about getting back into the business. So he went online and Googled Eclipse Comics, and he found an article I had written in praise of Saber. Mm. And my email address was included in the article, and he sent me a note and said, I remember you. <laughs> and, of course, I remember Dean. That's and so, so funny. And so we started exchanging talk back and forth, and one of the first things he was rereading in order to sort of get reacclimated into the business, he was rereading the Ditko Spider-Man. Oh, cool. Cool, cool. And so we started talking about, you know, we, we realized that we were very simpatico in our, our views and, and our likes and dislikes. And so we said, we should do something. And we said, well, what should we do? And at the time, today, there are, there are multiple companies, and there are, are literally probably, uh, oh, my goodness, I bet we measure the reprinted comic strips in the hundreds now. Yeah. But at the time, the only thing that was really going was Fantagraphics reprinting Peanuts. Right. That, you know, that's, that, that's the first I remember of them reprinting them, starting with strip one, and then yep, grouping exactly them by right. ones. Was that the first... That is, the first, that is the trailblazer for okay. this whole market, yeah. is Fantagraphics and Peanuts. So we said, well, you know, we could reprint strips. And we said, what strip would we do? We're both huge Kniff fans. Mm-hmm. And we said, we've got to do Terry and the Pirates. Yeah. So we made the commitment that, you know, we would do the first six books. And it turned out Dean had a prior business con- connection through Eclipse with the uh, president of IDW Publishing. Oh, and okay. so... Dean reached out to him for, you know, information on the current lay of the the business side of the land. What's the printing cost? What's distribution, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And they worked out a deal between the two of them that Dean and I would package the books and we would use IDW's printing, distribution, and publicity network to help us, um, you know, get the actual physical product nice. and get it distributed into stores. <clears throat> Yeah. So uh, and there's so, obviously demand for this stuff. They have they haven't exactly been seen right. since the they were in the newspaper. So Exactly right. So yeah. much of this material has never been been reprinted. So yeah. you know, it it was, it was originally published. Obviously some of the early Spider-Man the Lee and Romita stuff yeah. has been reprinted a few different times. But to be able to say we want to start at the beginning and do uniform editions. Mhm. 
uh, you know, usually we do two years, two years in a book. But, mm-hmm. you know, year by year, we want to follow major strips right. through, strips that deserve reprinting or are popular enough to have audience demand uh, or that have historical, uh, you know, importance. Mm-hmm. Or, frankly, some strips that we just like a lot and yeah. we want other people to like them, too. So it's a pretty good mix. We get to do largely what we want to do. Uh, and uh, and the good news is with IDW's business arm behind us, that's yeah. literally how we got the Spider-Man license with Marvel. Uh, we had another editor at IDW, mm-hmm. Scott Dunbeer, who has won multiple Eisner Awards for those giant black-and-white artist editions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that reprint. In fact, you know, there's been Romita Spider-Man artist yeah. edition and Gil Kane. Gil K- I was just gonna say Gil Kane. Yeah, I don't yeah. own one of those, but they're huge books, and and they are huge they, books. And yeah. uh, and so he had had great success partnering with Marvel on not just the yeah. Spider-Mans, but they've done a whole line of of Marvel-related artist editions. And so he had the the entree, mm-hmm. and that allowed us to be able to explore could we could we get the rights to Spider-Man, and and mm-hmm. Marvel was very good about it. Uh, Marvel has the uh, the right as they should. They own Spider Man. They want to make sure that uh, you know the you know that we're presenting it in an appropriate way. So right. they get to approve every every book as we prepare it. Yeah. And Marvel so far has been just splendid to deal with. They they are yeah. thoroughly professional. They are perfect gentlemen and ladies. And uh, you know, we have had absolutely no. Uh, issues at all with Marvel. It's awesome. been just a pleasure to deal with it. You were talking about there's been some attempts to reprint this stuff before. I own a book. It's got a yellow cover on it. Uh, I think I bought it in the 80s that reprinted a lot of the Ramita stuff. And yes. the, then there was a, an attempt by Marvel that I right. bought both hardcovers, and I was so the disappointed. Sideways. The sideways you, you hardcovers. Ho- you had to hold it like a Playboy, man. I did. Yes. <laughs> What was, <laughs> I had never thought of it that what, way. What was, that it, is... what was the deal with that? Why did they mess that up so bad? Well, it's interesting. Um, the comic book companies, I think, know comic books. Yeah. And, and formatting comic strips and comic books are two separate things. Exactly. They're, and strips Horse, are horizontal, comic, yeah. You know, they, they tried to do a collection of the Conan newspaper strip, mm-hmm. and it's been rather severely criticized. And again, it's the same problem. Well, it's a different problem. You don't hold it like a Playboy, yeah. but they have shrunk down the strip oh. so small to fit into the book that it's, yeah. it's the artwork is, is smaller than a postage stamp, it seems. And, exactly. And it's very difficult to read the text. And so the comics, I, uh, the only conclusion I have, and this is pure speculation on mm-hmm. my part, is that the comic book people understand comic books. Yeah. They don't understand comic strips. And you know, their throughput, they're doing so many books in the course of every month, yeah. they don't really have time to designate somebody to be the nutty professor and say, <laughs> we want you to figure this out. They say, yeah, let's print it the long way instead yeah. of the short way. We'll do it horizontally, you know, portrait instead of landscape, <laughs> and we'll just bind it like a normal book, and people won't mind turning it over. Oh, yeah, and, we do. <laughs> you know, it just creates a, a disturbing reading experience. Oh, I was so excited to get that first volume. And I opened it up from the shrink wrap, and I'm like, what in the world? <laughs> and I'd already pre-ordered the second volume. And then, <laughs> and then come to find out a couple years after that, they put out a uh, soft cover edition, and they mm-hmm. printed them the, the correct way, I think. I never bought them. I, right. I, I waited until your stuff. But, uh, but man. the problem is, yeah. when you print it in the normal way, 
Yeah. You the, you have to the ratio of the strips is such you have to shrink them down so that oh. they are very small. Yeah, that's crazy. So I mean, we print oblong. Right. Um, you know, we're we're in essentially for Spider-Man, we are in a a, a portrait mode, mm-hmm. but we bind on the left-hand side of the book so that the strips can be reprinted. Uh, actually, very close. Well, these days, very close to the original, like say. Mm-hmm. early strips, say 1940s, 50s, yeah. uh, to the original size that showed up in the newspaper. Today, of course, yeah. you know, in the Spider-Man days of the 70s and the 80s, we may be actually printing larger than many newspapers. Wow. Yeah, they're, they're very thick, long books, and, and I, I appreciate what you guys have done with it. Um, talk a bit about um, the original strips. Where were they housed? How did you find the originals? How did that process happen for that first volume? Well, uh, it's always an interesting search yeah I would sometimes imagine <laughs> the search is very easy sometimes the search is very difficult mm. uh, for instance we are also doing a superman line of books and it turns right. out the superman newspaper strip is very rare and very hard to find oh man and, and, our and he's, he's is, older too when, when did those strips is, appear uh they uh, they appear at different times, okay. But they basically started in the very late 1930s. Oh and, yeah, that's going to be hard. And ran uh, well into the 60s and maybe even into the early 70s. I forget whether he got into 1970 or not. Right. But what we find is our conjecture is newspaper strip fans who would you know the types who would clip the strip out of the the newspaper every day. Mm-hmm. They said. Yeah, well, I don't need to do that. I can go get the comic book. And comic book fans said, why do I need this newspaper? Because I, I've got like a stack of Superman. It's a catch-22 there. Yeah. Exactly. So as a result, it was a little hard to find Superman. With Spider-Man, we are much more fortunate. Yeah. Because um, a lot of the the either proof copies from the syndicate or um, really high-grade copies of, of newspapers that contain Spider-Man yeah. are housed at the Billy Ireland Cartoon Library and Museum, which is located at the Ohio State University hmm. in Columbus. And that is, for, for true comics fans, that is like Alibaba's treasure trove. <laughs> they house the largest collection of comics and comics-related articles in history, wow. and again, we come back to Milton Kniff. Yeah, the entire library started because Milton Kniff went to Ohio State University, and Milton saved wow. everything—all so, his art, all his letters, everything wow. about his career, every newspaper article. And when he reached an age, he turned that those papers over to um, the Ohio State University, and the curator who took those realized what she had. And mm-hmm. built what is today the Billy Island wow. uh, Cartoon Library. So when you and get so, when you get the archives, are they microfiche or are they actual Ramita drawings no, no. or what are you getting? They are they are actual. Sometimes they are the syndicate proofs, which tend okay. to be on on very high quality paper. Okay. And sometimes they are actual newspapers that are being preserved at the library. Mm. And, you know, they have climate control. They uh, they have you know acid free to to minimize wear and tear on the right. uh, on the actual source material, and so what we'll do is get uh, the uh, again these these people are are wonderful to deal with. They are such terrific people. I love to go to the 
when I go there, first of all, it's it's a delight to actually see and touch so many neat things. Yeah, and your and your email said you were looking at some orphan Annie stuff the other day. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, you know they uh, they're also such wonderful people to deal with. So we wind up telling them we're looking for Spider Man from this period to this period, mm-hmm. and they will take it and and they will whether it's the proof or whether it's the uh, the, the actual newspaper strip they will take it and they will give us a high resolution scan on the strip and when you figure we're doing you know on the order of 600 or 700 strips mm-hmm. per book yeah i don't envy the poor people who are <laughs> probably college kids working in the library for extra credit but i still don't envy them having oh. to go and, and precisely scan every one of wow. those items wow so we wind up getting really good source material to work from typically from the billy ireland and and so Spider Man hmm. has been really pretty easy to uh, to track and put together. How when you put in a request, say for volume five, you've got seven hundred scripts or strips. How how long does it take them to scan it all and get it to you? Well, uh, <clears throat> it it will depend partially on what else is going on at the library mm, yeah. because it's not just a library; it's a museum. Right. So they have upstairs above the actual library itself on the second floor, they have a full museum display space and Mm -hmm. they run different shows featuring different artists or different themes and so if they're prepping for a different show or they're tearing down a show you know some of their manpower gets drawn away and then it takes longer to get things cycled but by and large you can put in a request and you know within ballpark average i would say within about four to five weeks they've Mm. got all the scanning done for you wow those are good interns (laughs) so that's exactly right you know that's it's, uh, and it's yep. like anything else. Once you get into a rhythm, yeah, no doubt. You know the uh, the startup is always sort of a little head scratch and a little bit right. of a, hmm, and I do this better. But once you kind of get it nailed, yeah, then uh, you know you pick up. So you do that learning, and you you uh, you get through the uh, you get through the cycle. Now, in, in I, I, I don't claim to be a math expert, so follow my math with this. Nineteen seventy seven to twenty eighteen is forty one years. Forty one, forty one years times. Tight. 365 days is 14,965 strips. Does that sound about right for Spider-Man? If- 14,965. <laughs> I just did the math on an Excel spreadsheet, and uh, you are exactly right. <laughs> so how long will this reprint project last? I mean, if you do one volume or two, we're talking 20 years plus, I think, well, to, to, just to um, reach 2018, and the strip's still going. The The... The the honest answer, although it sounds very glib, the yeah. honest answer is we'll do it as long as a we are still in business and b people still buy it. True, well, that, that's any uh, product, isn't it? Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> I mean that you know I mean Marvel the Marvel comics that I read as a boy always used to say you know they'd get a they'd get a letter from you know some some one shot fan from you know, like Schlabotkin, New Jersey, <laughs> and and the letter would say. How long can you keep printing, you know, Kill yeah. Raven, Warrior of the World? And the answer in the in the that the bullpen would put in was always, "We'll print them as long as you yeah. buy them." Because I, and, I know, was thinking, if if fell, if you could get stopped. get to the point like Jim Davis and Garfield, every time he has enough to put out a book, it's almost right. a past year. So I don't think you'll be right. up to like as close i mean if no. i know we're talking 20 years in the future but yeah but you know i mean we will go as long yep. as we can go and no and and certainly 
not that this is going to happen because Spider-Man sales have been very, very, very nice. We're very pleased with Good. the way Spider-Man has. That sold. was one of my questions. Um, yeah, but um, but uh, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things where it, it has legs and it's fun to do, and and it it connects in a very different way with with Dean's and my boyhood. Yeah. So, um, so you know, it's uh, it's one of those things that uh, we're we're always pleased to be able to be uh, yeah. putting together, and it's a pleasure to work on. It's always a pleasure to uh, get the files for the finished book ready to ship to the yeah. printer, and then when you get those uh, those copies, you get that box in the mail from the mm-hmm. shipping department, and you know your copies are inside. There is nothing <laughs> that beats opening that box and pulling the new book out because. You've seen it on the on the file on your computer, right? But nothing beats having the actual book in your hand. Yeah, one of my favorite things, along with the the uh, great uh, Stanley and John Romita and all the other artists, is your introductions. I I you're in, you've done introductions for all four volumes. I assume you're doing one for the fifth. I am. I am finishing yeah. it right now. Oh, awesome! I expect to be done shortly after 4th of July. And you, you've you gotten several good quotes in there from people with new interviews. You've interviewed Stan Lee, you've interviewed John Romita, Jim Shooter. Talk about what it was like to interview those people for this project. Oh, I, I will start with John Romita okay. because I have interviewed John for three different projects besides Spider-Man. Nice. And every time I have talked to John, he is just a prince of a guy. I cannot say enough. Nice. Good things about John. He's he's generous with his memories. He's honest with his opinions. Um, he's you know he remembers things. He tells funny stories. Yeah. He's just thoroughly engaging. Just an absolutely wonderful, wonderful guy. Is this on the phone or in person or? No, it's it's uh, I I go by phone. I okay. I do what you do, except I do it more old fashioned. <laughs> I have uh, I have a tape recorder that is oh. uh, tied into my phone, and I actually nice. run cassette tapes. Nice, nice. But uh, but Stan was very generous with his time. You know, Stan is a busy man, mm-hmm. and Stan is certainly nowhere near as young as he used to be. Yeah. Uh, and um, and Stan was uh, he gave me about twenty five minutes and mm-hmm. and gave me some good material, uh, some of which I've got to save for future for future volumes. Yeah. And so Stan was just thoroughly engaging, and it was very nice at the end. Uh, Stan said, well, you're a good interviewer, and I thank you for taking the time. <laughs> and it's like, hey, Stan Lee said I did a good job. <laughs> Check that off the bucket list. That's awesome. And, and I spoke with Stan's brother, Larry Lieber, yeah. because uh, Larry has, he did, he followed John Romita on the strip, and mm-hmm. so we reprinted many of his first wave of strips in Volume 3. So I spent 90 minutes on the phone with Larry, who nice. was just utterly charming. Um, again, very open with his recollections and, and stories to tell. Yeah. And, and was just uh, a delight to deal with. Nice. And, and, and most recently for volume four, we talked with Jim Shooter. Yeah. Who worked with Stan, uh, on, uh, on doing some of the, the plotting in the early stories. Mm-hmm. And, and Jim, you know, is always very professional, very nice yeah. to deal with. I got to interview him in person in Tulsa one time. He's a really cool guy. Well, here's a story. Okay. <laughs> uh, I actually, in in the early 80s, after Shooter was, was firmly ensconced as editor-in-chief, yeah. uh, I started pitching ideas to Marvel. 
You know how it is. After yeah. you've read enough of this stuff, you say, hey, I could do what these guys do. <laughs> so I pitched a few stories at Jim, and there was a Hawkeye story that I pitched, and that sort of resonated with him. And he sent me a letter, which I still have to this day, I think, <laughs> that, that said, uh, I read your plot. It was very interesting. I think you could do what Chris Claremont and Bill Mantlo do if you had an editor to plot with. So the next time you're in New York, why don't you give me a call? Oh, how neat. So in 1982, with that entree in hand, of course, back then I let it sit for about a month because I didn't want to look like I was too eager or anything. <laughs> or too hungry, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I did send him a note, and I said, I'll be in New York on such and such a date. Of course, I had no plans to be in New York. A guy from Maine, for crying out loud, what's he going to do in New York? Yeah. And uh, but I said, you know, I could, I could, uh, you know, I would be glad to uh, take you up on your offer. So we made an appointment. Then I made my travel arrangements, and I, uh, I wound up going to the Marvel offices in 1982, and Jim and I plotted a Captain America story together. Nice. And and Jim said, okay, go ahead and you know write it up Marvel style, you know. Flesh mm-hmm. out the plot and, and send it over to me, and and we'll see where we go from there. So I did that, and I sent it back to Jim, and I never heard another word. <laughs> that sucks. And I tried. <laughs> I had his number, so oh. I called the office, and his secretary would always say, Jim's in a meeting, or Jim's out of the building, oh. or whatever. I followed up with, with notes and said, you know, just want to, and I, you know, I was professional about it. Yeah. And, and I just never heard back. So obviously, I did something that he wasn't satisfied with. <laughs> but Man. I to this, and he decided apparently, eh, it's not worth wasting my time. That's funny. Uh, and and guess what? Jim Shooter's a busy man. He doesn't, yeah. you know, if I couldn't nail it the first time out as he thought I could, that's that's on me. That's right. not on Jim. But uh, I I always wished that I could have, you know, if I just needed to tweak something a little bit to get mm-hmm. it over the hump, I wish I could have got more feedback. Did, did you tell him uh, the story when you interviewed him? No. Uh, no. I mean, it's so long ago, and <laughs> yeah. Jim's career has been so long. I mean, he's yeah. done so much since he left Marvel yeah. that, you know, to me, it's a story that I'll always remember. Right. To him, it was like, oh, really? Oh, well, you know, <laughs> hey, sarah, sarah. Yeah. <laughs> and as I, yeah. as I tell people, I did later in the 90s, I did do some business at, at DC. If you look mm-hmm. me up on Amazon, mm-hmm. uh, my my childhood friend Lee Weeks and I did a Batman graphic novel together. I saw that. I love Lee Weeks' art. He is so Lee talented. Lee is just, just a prince he, of a guy. I, when he was a teenager, I can still picture him sitting on my, my parents' couch oh, that's with a, uh, a, a pad in hand drawing the thing and drawing the submariner and and uh, you know just just sketching his heart out. He does a great Spider-Man too. He does a fabulous Spider-Man. But yeah. of course Lee does everything fabulously. He's True. working on uh, on I believe it's Batman 51, 52 and 53 right nice. now. Nice. He just and, uh, he just so did a Batman I, annual with Catwoman too that was really good. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Yep. So That was really good. So oh, that's uh, cool. You know, um Jim was very good to deal with. Uh, I, I didn't get my chance there, but as I, I like to tell people, it all worked out for the best. No doubt, no doubt. And in fact, I did draw some money from Marvel Comics. I've actually drawn money two times from Marvel Comics. Oh, okay. Comics. Two periods, I should say. In the late 90s, like 1998, in perfect timing, because we can get to what happens in 1998 <laughs> at Marvel, uh, uh, Lee and I again teamed up, and we had an editor, 
And I have always, always, always dreamed of writing the original Nick Fury. Okay. The Jim Steranko Nick Fury. Right. And so uh, we had a little short story that was going to go into the the uh, Shadows and Light anthology that Marvel was doing. I remember that book. Short. Yeah. We were going to do a Nick Fury there, and then we were going to follow it with a miniseries. And, uh, and at the same time, I had made contact with another Marvel editor, and Sal Valuto and Bob Almond and I were going mm-hmm. to be a team on a revival of Deathlock the Demolisher. Oh, okay. And, of course, in 1998, that's when the bottom fell I out of I was just going to say, yeah. <laughs> and everything went bankrupt. Oh. And on the day my dad died, oh. in October of 1998, they went through editorial at Marvel and purged both my editors. Mm. And the way I know that <clears throat> is the next day, I was making calls to my father's friends or more distant family members to let them know and to uh, tell them what the arrangements, what the arrangements were going to be for the services. And that is not a fun duty. So I no. said, you know, I need to take a break. Let me call my home number and just check on my messages and my voicemail. And Bob Allman, who was going to be our inker on Deathlock, called me and he said, there has been a, uh, a, a reduction in force, a layoff mm-hmm. in Marvel editorial, and we don't know who's been affected yet. Hmm. Well, I had brought my editor's numbers with me, so I dialed the Nick Fury editor and his voicemail came, but it was just a normal message. Hmm. And I called the Deathlock editor's number. And it said, hi, I'm so-and-so. I used to work at Marvel. Oh, that's not good. So my, my day was not bad enough. Oh, man. Uh, I lost my dad, and I lost my foothold at Marvel because Oof. the Nick Fury editor had gone, too. And the new editors who were coming in were not really enticed to pick up any of the projects of their predecessors. Man. So uh, once again, I found my I, I found myself on the outside looking in, in at that time as well, yeah. and you know, uh, not the it doesn't make you feel really good, you know, to, to sustain a, a major loss in your family mm-hmm. and to uh, to lose, you know, sort of what you picture as a dream job. Yeah. But of course, time has passed, uh, you know, yeah. and now with the Library of American Comics, I get mm-hmm. to my second period at Marvel. Yeah. Because uh, Corey Settlemeyer, who edits the Marvel Masterworks program, mm-hmm. has asked me, so if you looked at X-Men Omnibus Volume 1, okay. Hulk Omnibus Volume 1, and four different Marvel Masterworks editions, I have written text features and introductions. Very cool. To those. So, Very cool. And in fact, the last one I wrote, I submitted right after the turn of the year, the next Iron Man volume, which I believe is Iron Man Volume Eleven in Marvel Masterworks, mm-hmm. I have the introduction. Oh, very cool! That's not that's oh, awesome. Yeah, a lot of- you're, you're, like I said, your introductions are one of my favorite parts of these books. So I'm glad you're continuing that. That's very cool. Well, we uh, we try to do a lot of research, and you yeah. know, I before before I can actually write, uh, whether I'm interviewing somebody or I'm going back and uh, and looking at at the newspapers and magazines of the time because. There was coverage, uh, you'll see in Volume 5. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spider-Man does a long story in 1985 in the newspaper strip about child abuse. Yeah. And I, this received uh, a huge amount of attention in the media. Yeah. And, I, I, uh, I think and, they put out a comic book also with yes, him and Power Pack. 
the book, the the Spider Man Power Pack book came yeah. out first. Which many people then, said uh, that that child abuser looked like Uncle Ben, which was unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> Just odd, yeah. Well, and, and, but but as the book was out there, yeah. Stan comes in and does a story in the newspaper that has the same idea, but it's a different story. Okay. Yeah. You know, Peter Parker still winds up being, uh, you know, suffering some degree of abuse as a child, mm-hmm. but with the newspaper, you know, a daily sort of thing. Yeah. There's more. Stan pays more attention to um, what happens. Peter's reactions afterward. You know, Peter right. becomes very withdrawn. He's not talking to Aunt May and Uncle Ben. His studies start to slide, and finally, Peter works up the courage to tell them. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the comic book, in only eight pages. They didn't have room to to get into that right. that level of backstory. Well, as we were talking, there has been four volumes with a fifth on the way. I thought we'd do each volume at a time. We talk about uh, each volume, some points sure. of it. Uh, talk a bit about what was the challenges of getting that first one out, that first volume. I I would tell you the challenges were not really too great. Okay. Uh, and, and by that I mean not too big, because mm-hmm. um, you're the, the you're a well-oiled of, machine by this point. Exactly right. Yeah. I mean, we had done over a hundred books at the Library of Congress. The, the first volume came out in two thousand uh, twenty fifteen, right? And so we were prepping it probably in late twenty fourteen, mm-hmm. and so by then we're well over a hundred books in our our total imprint. Yeah, and you know we we kind of understand how to tackle it. We're familiar with the the source material because like you i had bought the uh the playboy uh, hardcovers <laughs> the, the playboy Marvel. spider-man yeah. so, so i had read yeah. the entire run that we were going to have mm-hmm. in the first book yeah and i had john ramita's contact information mm-hmm. and i knew that i could get to john i was seeking to get stands it took me a little while to get stands stands not an easy guy to get to and that's certainly as it should be L- luckily uh, i've i was able to get stan on this podcast because oh, really? Excellent. I, Good I, you. I, um, we did a, uh anniversary of 40th anniversary of Sal Buscema. So oh, love, I, love I, uh, I invited Tom DeFalco on, Ron Friends, and uh, several other people, and I was able to get Stan on the phone to talk Excellent. to Sal Buscema. It's a, I'll have to send you the link. It's a really fun podcast. It, we yep. did it like 10 years ago, so it was cool. Well, when I when I was doing my Batman graphic novel, Lee and I went to the DC offices one day while it was still, you know, in, in its finishing stages. Yeah. And Sal was working for DC for a short period of time, and it yeah. turned out Sal was in the office that day. Such a nice and guy. Sal was just the nicest guy. Exactly. He had the most tremendous sense of humor. Yep. He, you know, he said something, and I forget exactly what it was. But he and I were standing in the Batman office with, at the time, two Batman associate editors who both left D.C. since then. Mm-hmm. But um, they asked him a question, and Sal, just in this deadpan, delivered an answer that shocked <laughs> both of them. And you could see it on their faces. Yeah. And they're standing there with their, their eyes wide and their, their mouth starting to open wide. And Sal looks at me with his big grin, and he and I just cracked up because you know I I, could, I knew he was putting you know putting the wool over That's on. That's funny. So the 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 strip in '77 starts off with uh, playing off the terrorism that's in the headlines of the newspapers it's yep. appearing in, and it, yep. it presents Doc uh, Doctor Doom as a terrorist. Right. I guess I guess Stan wanted this to tie into what's in the paper already. I guess. 
Well, Stan not only wanted it to tie into what was in the paper, yeah. Stan wanted to lead with the characters he liked best. And yeah. obviously, there, with, with apologies to everybody who has followed him, nobody writes Doctor Doom better than Stan Lee. Yeah. End of story. Yeah. So, so he wanted to lead that way. He wanted it to resonate with newspaper readers. And in those days... He also wanted to, uh, he, he, he uh, imposed upon John, John Romita, and I don't think, talking to John, I don't think that's too strong a word, because he would ask John to put cameos of then-famous famous people in the I was just going to say, Travolta, Streisand, Bron- Charles Bronson, right. Sammy Davis Jr. And even in, that, even in that Doctor Doom, the first story, yeah. uh, you know, Doctor Doom is... is Seizing, he's sealing up the the UN, and he's holding mm-hmm. various world leaders. So he's holding, uh, you know, Indira Gandhi, who was then running India, uh, yeah. Yasser Arafat, who was you know the Palestinian Liberation um, Orders uh, uh, leader. Uh, you know, all these Anwar Sadat from the, yeah. the president of Egypt are being held hostage in the UN. Yeah. And Barbara Walters <laughs> is, uh, and other news at uh, Walter Cronkite are standing outside doing reports. And so when John spoke to me, when Mr. Ramita spoke to me, he said, yes, yeah, Stan would be asking me to you know, put in these cameos because we wanted recognizable figures. And he's like, yeah, Stan, you just write it down on the page, but I have to draw <laughs> these people. He, Ramita, he, he can draw anything, and those were dead oh. on uh, yeah. uh What's the word I'm looking for? Car- caricatures of the actual people. It was, yeah, it and was great. I, I asked him um, because it's well known in the in the Marvel bullpen of that period. Marie mm-hmm. Severin, yeah, uh, who who drew the Submariner and and several other the things Hulk. and yeah. colored a whole batch. Exactly. Marie was a famous caricaturist, mm. and so I asked him, "Did you ever think of asking Marie to help you do some of these characters?" And he said. Now that you mention it, I wish I'd been smart enough to think that. <laughs> so, so again, but, he, but he's apparently get, he was doing them all himself. So he's again, Stan. I think in your intro you said Stan just thought it'd be fun, and uh, I guess his his line of thinking is these people would be in the headlines of a newspaper, so that would draw eyes to the strip. I guess I don't know. Right, and one of the things that Stan said was yeah. he was always very aware that the newspaper audience. Yeah. was not the comic book audience. Right. He was trying to reach, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Average American. Yeah. And he figured some of the comic book readers were going to be coming along for the ride, yeah. but he couldn't count on just the comic book audience coming yeah. over. I mean, you know, that is the thing about in their heyday. Yeah. You know, we, we make a big deal about, oh, you know, in the, in the 19, late 1940s, Superman sold a million copies an issue. Yeah. Captain Marvel, the the original Big Red Cheese, sold over a million copies an issue. In the newspaper strips of the time, we'd be saying, like, Dick Tracy gets to 40 million people every day. <laughs> yeah, so, you're, one of your opening sentences in your... always int- a much bigger audience. One of your opening sentences is about uh, of the first volume is, not everybody knew who Spider-Man was in 1977, especially Correct. the people that took the paper, you know? Right. <laughs> uh, right. uh, most every... Uh, villain that Romita and Lee did in the comics stuck. The uh, the Kingpin is one of my favorites, and those two did together. But in I, the comic strip, they introduced the Rattler, and I I don't think he ever made it to the comic pages, the comic book pages. The comic book. I he, I think you're right. To my knowledge, he never made it into he, the comic book. He looks like the lizard, only he's like a snake, I guess. <laughs> 
I would say he's sort of a cross. That's actually an interesting thought. Yeah. He's, I would say he's sort of a cross between the lizard yeah. and the cobra from the cobra in the Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I just wonder why the Rattler wasn't more popular. He was introduced in the comic strip. Right, so, right. And, but yeah. Stan, Stan does, not to give it away to anybody who hasn't read our first volume, but the yeah. Rattler does die at the end of the story. Oh, well, there so, you go. Maybe that's why he didn't <laughs> Not that that stops anything. After all, this is comics. Uncle exactly. Spider-Man's died a few dead. times. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, you know, but but uh, that probably did uh, play yeah. in at the time. Yeah, no doubt. Well, the uh, the second volume came out in 2016, and yep. it collects uh, the rest of 79, goes up to 1981. What right. was anything different about volume two that you can tell us? Sure. Yeah. Uh, basically... By the time we get into Volume 2, um, Stan introduces and, and plays up. I mean, Mary Jane is still there. Right. Mary Jane actually winds up, because, of course, Mary Jane's always been interested in the entertainment industry. Yeah. She winds up getting a job fronting for Craven the Hunter. There you go. When he's doing a, uh, a, a like a, a sideshow, if you will, you know, mm-hmm. like a, an a amusement park attraction. Yeah, he's a headline act, and Mary Jane is is like his you know magician's assistant. She comes out in in a typical Ramita midriff bearing uh, you know <laughs> face a tiger, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, you know costume and yeah. uh, and helps him go through the uh, the actions. Yeah. Um, the Prowler, one of my mm-hmm. favorites, Hobie Brown, yeah, the window washer who becomes a. Uh, Originally a misunderstood supervillain and and you know more or less a hero inspired by John Romita Jr. Yes, yeah. exactly right. Yeah, uh, actually the story behind that. Mm-hmm. Well, the partial story behind that. John Romita Jr. came up with the Prowler idea mm-hmm. and the the concept of you know the the equipment that he would use, but the costume was John Senior's. Yeah, because that was the costume that was going to appear on, as as the television terror in the third, the never done third issue of the the, the Peter magazine, Parker, the spectacular yeah. Spider-Man magazine, right? And so they were casting around, and and John Junior had this idea, and Stan said, "Yeah, we should do that." And so John Senior melded his right. son's ideas with that costume that he'd already designed, okay. modified it accordingly. And the result was the Prowler. Nice. Now, we talked about the Rattler in this volume, the Protector and the Cult of Loomis. Talk us, right. talk about those two characters. or Because we haven't seen those in the comic books. <laughs> uh, true. And the other person we haven't seen in the yeah. uh, comic book is, uh, is uh, Peter's sometime love interest, Carol. Oh, yeah. Look. Let's hit the villains up because Carol was my next question, actually. So okay, the, there you go. I won't get <laughs> I won't get too far ahead of anything. Talk about the protector. Um, what was the protector villain? Well, um, I have to admit, I have to go back and look yeah. through the book oh, to okay. really give a good rundown on the protector. Uh, the cult of Loomis yeah. sticks in my mind, and that's why I thought of Carol as soon as you said the cult of Loomis. Right, I thought of Carol because she's involved with it. The because prote- I I am I am not caught up either <laughs> on the all the books. This seven hundred strips is a lot to read. Seven hundred strips is a lot to read, and, <laughs> and I am now I am now up to nineteen eighty five and nineteen eighty six. There you go, there you go. 
The Cult of Loomis, well, we can talk about Carol a little bit. Carol, her last name is Jennings. Yeah. Carol Jennings, the, the girlfriend that's not talked about much. They, you always hear Gwen Stacy, Mary Jane. Carol Jennings does not come up even near uh, uh, Liz Allen or anybody else. Talk about that. And, that and was I a... think that's vastly unfortunate because, <laughs> well, originally, yeah. uh, and, and John Romita talked to me about this. Awesome. Originally, she's really just sort of a walk-on co-ed at ESU. Yeah. Uh, they were not going to use Gwen Stacy in the comic strip. So, you know, they, they wanted, you know, cute girls sell. So they wanted to have a cute girl. To, and so, you know, you'd see Peter on the campus and he'd say, well, you know, hey, Carol, you know, uh, can I, you know, are, are you headed to, you know, physics class or, or whatever? Are you going to the the concert tonight or whatever? And she was just somebody that Peter talked yeah. to. And Ramita said... Stan liked the look of her, and he liked the fact that I seemed to give her a personality. Mm-hmm. And so he he started to write her. He said, I didn't expect it. He didn't tell me he was going to do it, but suddenly he was bringing her more and more into the story. Yeah. And eventually she becomes uh, Peter's love interest for a time. That's funny. And she's she is a typical... Uh, Ramita lady, so of course she's, she's beautiful. beautiful. <laughs> she's beautiful. Yeah, and uh, and you know, and and Ramita, the thing that, uh, as so many of the great artists do, their characters don't just have a simple look that that is always constant, a simple expression, a simple body language. They're actors. Mm-hmm. Their faces emote. They use gestures. They stand in different positions to indicate different emotions or yeah. different levels of stress. And so he really does bring her to life and then, you know, stand. Yeah. One of the things I always say, you know, about the early Marvels, there is, there is a certain line of thought that says that Stan gets too much credit and Kirby and Ditko uh, especially don't get enough credit. And I stand behind nobody in my admiration for Jack and for, for Steve Ditko. Mm-hmm. But we know what Jack and Steve Ditko's writing is like, and so I may, and, and nothing against, because they've yeah. had great successes. But I think without Stan's ability to put distinctive word patterns and distinctive yep. personalities, somebody once told me, you could read a Stan Avengers, and as the Quinjet is landing, mm-hmm. all you see is Jet, and you see like six word balloons coming out of it, and you know who's speaking in each of those words. <laughs> Very true. Because Stan knows how to make them distinctive. And Stan That's did the funny. same thing between his ability to make Carol distinctive and Romita's ability to make her act. Right. She really does become, I think, a, a very interesting character. Yeah, no doubt. I wonder if we could bring her back 40 years later. Well, Peter's uh, Peter's married in the strip now. <laughs> uh, you can never tell. There could be somebody reading our books today who's eventually going to wind up being the next writer of Spider-Man. No and doubt. And say, you know what I want to do? Carol Jennings. Where has she been for 40 years? That's right. <laughs> so uh, moving on to Volume 3. I, is Volume 3 the first time this stuff's ever been reprinted? Because I've seen yeah. the Ramita stuff. We moved and some of the Lieber stuff that immediately follows John to sort of wrap up yeah. the story had been reprinted, I think, in the Marvel Playboy hardcovers, maybe. Yeah. 
But I love that. That's some what, of it has, <laughs> that's some the of it has name of it. Printed, but by and large, most of the material is being reprinted here in our volume three yeah. for the first time. Yeah. So volume three has Doctor Doom, Doc Ock, the Assassin, and the Man with the Power. Uh, right. Anything about the Assassin or the Man with the Power you can talk me talk about? Uh, well, the Man with the Power basically yeah. has. Um, sort of a, an extra sensory has mental mental powers. He, yeah. can, he can influence things with his mind. Physically, he mm-hmm. can influence things. And uh, the man with the power uh, winds up having a, a, an exciting showdown that involves J. Jonah Jameson and an yeah. ice skating rink. There you How's go. That for <laughs> go pick it up, kids. Yeah. <laughs> now, on this one, I, I noticed the colors on the Sunday are just a little bit different than the previous... Are the copies not as good, or what? what did you notice well, a little bit change? Uh, I think you're going to see that yeah. it's it's a reflection of the re- the 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 evolution of the production techniques mm. as the years go on within within the original source material. Right. I think you're going to see that um, the syndicates who are responsible for getting the color into the strips changed their process, and I'm yeah. not schooled enough in the details of, of how the, the before process and the after process right. worked. But, you know, there was newsprint prices continue yeah. to go up from the, yep. you know, the end of the 70s into the 80s through the 90s. The cost of newsprint goes up. Uh, advertising revenues become tougher and tougher to get because, yeah. you know, there's so many more different competitions. Uh, you know, cable TV explodes. And so... Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to advertise on the newspaper anymore. I'm going to advertise on television. Know, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm going to advertise on Nick at Night, and I'm going to reach more people for less money. Right. So there were continual efforts to do more with less and to find ways to cut corners. Right. And so you know, I think you're, what you're seeing there is really more a a reflection of the changes in production right. uh, qua- yeah. production processes of the time. Right rather than a change in the way that we put the material together. So Ramina is off the strip, and uh, as we talked about, Larry Lieber, Stan's brother, came on for a little bit. Stan comes on. Larry comes on for a little bit to work yeah. with Stan, um, and they did a takeoff on a show called um, That's Incredible. I remember that. Air at the time. Yep. Uh, it had Fran Tarkington and Kathy Lee Crosby, I believe. Wonder Woman. <laughs> uh, that's right, the original Wonder Woman from TV, and... Um, John Davidson, maybe? There yep, were three that's hosts. right. That's it. And uh, so, so Stan and Larry do a, a takeoff on that uh, with one of the classic Spidey tropes, but they do this. Spidey shows up on this show, and they pay him with a check. Oh, and yeah. And Spidey can't cash the check. Can't cash the check. So, you know, Spider-Man can't get instant deposit anymore, either. <laughs> you know, that, the, he, he just can't get anything true. going. <laughs> so, so not only was Larry there, Larry... Yeah. And Larry told me this when he when I spoke with him. Larry said, "I I loved doing the strip, but I wasn't fast enough." And one yeah. of the things is, like all comics, comics is a hard business. You need to turn out you know twenty two pages a month. You need to turn out seven strips you know to fill the newspaper every day. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard business. It's a grind. I don't see and how Larry tr- said yeah. I just wasn't fast enough. He is now. As he's older, he is which is crazy. He said, <laughs> he said I, I told Stan I want to leave this, and I want to come back when I've mastered enough of the 
of of uh, of the skills of a, a professional artist. Yeah. To be able to do this on a full time basis, he said. Now he said. Phew. He says, "There's nothing I can't try." He says, "I'm totally confident I can meet my deadlines." That's cool. But he said, "Back then, I stepped away, and so uh, Larry left, and the third artist was Fred Keita, mm-hmm. very underrated man. In fact, I'll I'll give you a scoop here. Okay. Um, we have been fortunate enough to find Fred's one of Fred's sons and one of his grandchildren, and we have spoken with Fred's family. They have been wonderful people. Uh, it turns out Fred uh, was, uh, you know, he did his cartooning work, but yeah. what he really liked to do for relaxation was paint in oils. Mm. So not only have we got information about Fred from the family that we will be sharing with people both in Volume 5 and on our website, because they gave us so much material, I oh, can't cool. put it in the book. Cool. So out we'll spill over and do some feature work on our website. They sent us examples of Fred's oil paintings. Oh, and cool. they're really, really there's some beautiful stuff here. Nice. And so we'll be having uh we'll be having that. I've been teasing this in other um in other interviews I've done. Well, we've got a you know uh, some 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 stuff about you know, some mystery some mystery art and some mystery interviews that we'll be showing with you. But but uh, I'll, I'll let you know that uh, we're cool. going to be able to. If you go out today and you Google Fred Keita, mm-hmm. there's a there, there's a nice obit at the comicsjournal dot com. Um, Mark yeah. Evenier at his blog uh, did some some notations on on Fred's passing several years ago. Right. But by the time we get done, we will have put out more information about Fred Keita than everybody else has currently put together. That's awesome. Fred, so that's a nice yeah. Fred was actually the very first artist I saw on the strip. Uh, really? It, it really was. Uh, early 80s is when I started reading the comic strip, and his Spider-Man is what I saw in the Sunday strips. And I was looking him up, and, and he had a long life. He was 93 when he passed away in 2014. Yep. And uh, just underrated. I, I liked his style a lot. Right, very so, much so. He used to, when Ramita was drawing the strip, Yeah. John said... There would be times I'd be in a deadline crunch, and he said I would go to somebody like Frank Giacoya, mm-hmm. or I would go to uh, Fred Keita, and he said both of them knew my style, yeah, and could um, and could emulate my style successfully, right. And so it was sort of a, a natural progression that uh, that Fred would sort of step in to uh, to take over when Larry left the book because right. you know he was very Romita like in his approach, exactly, and again. He was another disciple of Milton Kniff from Terry and the Wow. So Volume 4, that one came out in 2017. It's the most recent one. It collects 1983 to 1984. And in your intro, you talked about how Jim Shooter came on to the plot, the stories, a little bit with Stan. Stan had had enough by that point, I think. He needed some help. Well, um, Jim talks about that a little bit. And, you know, Stan was... Stan was, at the time, you know, shifting away. His interests were moving off the, the publishing end and more toward the, the Hollywood end, trying to yeah. leverage the characters. And he was sort of the face of the franchise. He was doing a lot of publicity work. Yeah. And so he wasn't, um, for obvious reasons, you only have so much time and so much energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't devoting as much time to following everything in the comics. And so he he just kind of said, you know, Maybe it would be more beneficial to have some of the folks who are are you know rolling up their sleeves every day in this help me plot it, 
yeah. because they know what's going on and what will resonate with today's readers, where maybe I'm not as day-to-day tapped into that as I used to be. Right. And yet they'll also be able to work with me and help make sure that I keep doing material that's going to be interesting right. to the more general audience. And then so, Stan would do the dialogue? Is that what would happen? Stan, Stan was dialogue. You're right. right. And in fact, if you look at it, uh, you can and sometimes you know the the stories are moving at such a progression that the dialogue doesn't really take front and center. Right. But there are certain strips along the way where you can just read it and you know that is stand to the light. <laughs> His now, style is just you know it's, it's yeah. inimitable. You, it just comes you, you know through. Stan's voice just as well as when you see a Quinjet. You know who's talking. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. That's uh, exactly I, I've right. often wondered, and uh, since Stan started having other people plot this for him. I've often heard that Roy Thomas currently does the strip. It plots him, and that is true. Roy, and, Roy is currently. Um, does Stan Roy still do the dialogue, or I, I wonder how that works? Um, I have. I had reason when I was writing my Iron Man introduction for yeah. uh, Iron Man Masterworks. Yeah, I had reason to reach out to Roy, mm-hmm. and I said. I had this Iron Man question related related question for him. I had this Iron Man related question, and so I said mm-hmm. to him, "By the way, I would love to talk to you about uh, the Spider Man newspaper strip." Yeah, I said, "I know you have involvement with that," and Roy's response was, "I'll be glad to do that when you guys get up to the point where I come on board." <laughs> so, um, I wonder so, what year that is. <laughs> I and, and, and you know, I I, I think Roy wants to talk about the material he's familiar with. Roy Darby doesn't want to give opinions on other people's work, and I totally yeah. understand that. I, I totally respect that. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't want to speculate about yeah. the inner workings of it yet, because frankly, I haven't spoken to Roy, right? Um, and I haven't researched enough about what was going on then. So I don't really want to speculate and then right. wind up, you know, winding up finding out that, uh, I didn't just put my foot in my mouth, but I crammed the other one in there with it. So, you know, yeah, I no think doubt. It was one of those times where, where <laughs> no progression is a little better part of that. No health. problem. Well, in this volume, Mary Jane gets a job at a computer store. It's very... Uh, well, it's a little more than that. Yeah. They, they, uh, the, the short answer to that is yes. Right. But the, the, the longer answer is she's not... Uh, you know, like working at um, Radio at, Shack. She's not, she's not like um, the Geek Squad representative <laughs> at, at your local Best Buy. Can you imagine if Mary um, Jane worked at the Geek Squad? There'd be lines. <laughs> there, there probably would be. It'd be like everybody would be signing up to be a geek. But uh, what she's actually done, she is she has been away for a while. Yeah. Uh, if you looked in the prior volume and, and up to a certain point in this one, she has been away for a while. Because she has been in London working with the owner of a major computer uh, retailer. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've been, you know, over in the London office together. And now this fellow is going to set up um, franchises yeah. for a spin off computer company. And Mary Jane is going to run that business for him. Right. Yep. So it's not like she's just sitting there demonstrating. <laughs> They're saying Mary Jane has a brain and she has some business acumen because look what right. this guy's doing. He trusts her enough and, to uh, and put if mem- her in charge of the startup effort. If memory serves, the the villain is the bites. Is that what it is? I think there there like, is a a villain there. Yes, the uh, bites. Yeah, Spider Man versus the bites. Yes, <laughs> because back then that yeah. was you know computers were still a new enough er- thing. So early eighties. Like, yeah. Oh my. Yeah. Oh, the bites. Oh, this is really this is really new and trendy. Well, you you remember the uh, the Spider-Man's Amazing Friends? He fought Video Man. Remember That's that? Correct. 
So there was multiple things. Uh, also, in this volume, uh, Stan Lee, I think, is trying to spin off a Submariner comic strip. Well, <laughs> it's, it's interesting to see. Yeah. This is the very first Marvel hero. The villains, yeah. as you said, Doctor Doom, Doctor Octopus, yeah. the Kingpin, Mysterio, they've showed up. Um, but this is the first Marvel hero to show up. Yeah. And it was an interesting choice to use Namor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but, uh, and, and the thought of, hmm, maybe he was trying to, to leverage, uh, crossed my mind, but I have no evidence of that. Right, yeah. But I, I do think Stan always liked writing that, uh, that sort of florid, sort of neo-Shakespearean dialogue. Yeah. And Thor and Namor are two of the best at that. No doubt. So I think Stan may have been, it may have been as simple as Stan. This is, again, just conjecture on my part. It may have been as simple as, I miss writing the these and the thous <laughs> and the thighs and the wilts. And, the, yeah. and so, who could I do that with? I know, Spider-Man could meet the Submariner. I remember when I was reading that as a kid, I thought it odd that Spider-Man was never in the costume. It was always Peter Parker. Exactly right. And that and, entire story. Yeah. That, that, how many months is that? A Spider-Man out of suit. <laughs> a couple months worth. Yeah, that's got to be. It's about a, uh, a, between a, probably a three and a four month continuity. Yeah. Like you occasionally get like a Spider-Man floating head of guilt in a costume, but that's, <laughs> that's about right. it. That's right. <laughs> uh, also, Peter got am- amnesia in this one, in this volume, I think. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Peter gets amnesia and thinks he is a... Well, he thinks, and a whole batch of CD Underwood character, uh, Underworld characters think, yeah. that he is a ruthless assassin. <laughs> Little do they know. <laughs> you know, he has no idea who he is. His wallet yeah. somehow is lost in, in the accident that he has that gives him the amnesia, yeah. and and uh, he shows up in the wrong place at the wrong time, and and the hoods hoods are there. They go, you, you must be the assassin we're waiting for, the guy that we never know. Yeah. And he's like, I guess I must be. And so, <laughs> he's, you know, uh, yeah. so mayhem, mayhem uh, results. That's funny. Now, we didn't have a volume in 2018. Is there a reason for that? or uh, There is a reason. It's very boring business stuff. <laughs> um, and, and so I don't know. Uh, here you go. Another story. When okay. I was a kid. Yeah, I would devour everything and everything I read, whether it was a hardcover book, a paperback book, a comic book, a magazine, right. and that includes reading everything in the indicia in that little mm. tiny type that's yeah. down at the bottom for, of the for back subscription, page yeah, or on uh, yeah. Or on in our books uh, facing you know the uh, the title page, the book, the page with all the credits in it, right, and. Um, so if you looked at that page in volume three, okay. you would see we had one, we, the Library of American Comics, and in fact, all of IDW Publishing, had one distributor who was distributing to bookstores like, you know, Books a Million and, and Barnes and Noble and others, uh-huh. and, then, and they were also distributing to the comic shops. If you read the Indicia in volume four, we will see, you will see that the business decision was made to go with a different distributor into the bookstore market hmm. and keep the same distributor into the comic shops. Okay. Well, the new distributor specifically said to us at the Library of American Comics, you're not your your production rate is so fast, you're not giving us time to establish uh, bookstore presence and to stimulate sales for each volume. 
Mm. So can you start to rethink your publication schedule so that we can have time to drive the extra sales that we think we can get for you? Okay. And it's like extra sales, good thing. <laughs> Let's do that. Yeah. So so we have slowed down for those business reasons to try to accommodate the uh, the uh, the bookstore market because again, yeah. it, it's almost like the the situation that Stan and, and company faced with the, the newspaper strip. Mm. In the comic book market, everybody knows the cadence of comic books, and yeah. everybody's used to going to their favorite shop who has a shop near them, uh, or uses a mail-order service like Westfield Comics. There mm-hmm. are very fine people there, and, and certainly many others that are around. Um, and so they're, they're used to that cadence. But in the bookstore, the general book trade, the people who come in and out of Books A Million or Barnes & Noble or wherever, they're not used to that cadence. And yeah. they want to have a more leisurely, they're, they're willing to explore, but it takes time to explore. Mm-hmm. And so it takes time for them to find certain specific books. Right. So, so we're, we're kind of slowing down to that pace to, right. to try to, uh, to help our, our distributor maximize you know, well, our sales potential. That answers my next question. Will there be two volumes in 2019? <laughs> um, so. and, and that's always possible. I mean, this yeah. one's taken a little extra time because we had to adjust our schedule. Yeah. So you go through that, that adjustment period of, here's the old cadence of publishing, and yeah. here's the adjusted cadence of publishing. But now we're into that cadence, mm-hmm. and so it's possible. Not every book has to necessarily be 12 months or 14 months apart. Right. Um, certain books, uh, you know, it's possible we could get one at the start of a year and one sort of time like December, the tag end, you know, yeah. holiday time of the year. Yeah. And and certainly for something like Spider Man, it does have appeal. It's always possible yeah. that we might say we'd really like to accelerate this next volume of Spider Man a little bit to get it in the stores in time for the holidays, or yeah. or to get it in you know right around the cusp of the year when yeah. when people have Christmas money and you know yeah. Spider Man makes a great a great uh, way to spend <laughs> some of that Christmas money. Exactly. So you okay. know, that's entirely possible, but uh, you know basically. We're going to be uh, in early 2019 for Volume Five, and then uh, we'll we'll plan out Volume Six, and you know, yeah. we we'll be there, uh, you know, uh, maybe a little earlier, but mm-hmm. certainly no later. The the gap between four and five should not be reported. Oh, good, five and good. Six. According to Amazon, it's February 12th, 2019, is when Volume Five comes out. Yes, a- and a- Amazon that will probably be the exact date. However, comic shops. Okay. Uh, and comics retailers do get it earlier than Amazon. Okay. And brick and mortar stores usually get it slightly earlier than Amazon. So it's possible uh, diligent people may be getting their Spider-Man Volume Fives in January. Awesome. Well, the description from Amazon, I'll, I'll read it. The web. Uh, did you write this, by the way? Uh, I believe the, I did. The, yes. the, the the woe be gone web slinger encounters problems that make Dar Herat. Is that how you say it? That is correct. Uh, seem like uh, sewing circle. If he can escape from their clutches, that is. Daily Bugle writer Jenny Sue Saxon arrives and falls for Peter Parker while trying to become Spider-Man's biographer. Even as Aunt May faces financial ruin in a very modern kind of bank heist, Mary Jane returns just in time to learn an important secret and introduce Peter to her uncle Spencer Watson. What? No, Aunt Anna. Spidey's uh, reputation is under fire when he's accused of pushing drugs. It's not for the squeamish, and in a story that rivals the classic drug issues of Spider-Man's comic book, Stanley addresses one of the most heart-rending or heart-rending uh, problems of modern times: child abuse. So it sounds like there's another girlfriend coming. 
Jenny Sue Saxon, who I've never heard of. Well, um, <laughs> Jenny Sue Saxon is is basically there for the child abuse story. Oh, she's a well, that she's took a, a turn. Daily Bugle reporter. Yeah, and Peter winds up dealing with her, and it turns out uh. that he's trying to sell Jonah Jameson on. I could get you Spider Man to uh, to get his biography. I so, see. Jonah says, well, that's great, but you're a photographer. I want a writer to do this, and I'm going to give you J.S. Saxon. Mm. And so Peter, thinking it's a guy, says, well, I'll, I'll, I'll meet with, with Saxon right. because I can help set this whole thing up for you. And he goes in thinking he's going to find a man, and it turns out it's Jenny Sue. I'll be. We'll have to find and out if Jenny, it's a love interest or not. <laughs> well, Jenny Sue has a young daughter who shows... Oh. Signs of being abused, and one of the signs oh, wow. is whenever anybody mentions Spider-Man, she becomes terrified. Oh, man. And, and Jenny Sue doesn't understand it. Peter certainly doesn't understand it. Uh, and so the story that Stan crafts yeah. is about the daughter's child abuse and who is abusing her. Uh, it's about the relationship that grows between Peter and Jenny Sue. It grows with the problems Peter's going to have when Jenny Sue says, so you can set me up with this Spider-Man guy? Great. One of the two of you going to show up so I can uh, I can talk to you, and you can take some pictures of this. And, Man. And, you know, we can have a really great start to our feature here. And so there's multiple threads that wind in this, and yeah. as the child abuse story builds, uh, it turns out that uh, that Peter has to uh, you know reveal his own deep dark secret from his past. And so we have a a flashback that covers about two weeks of the of the strip, in which Peter goes back to his old boyhood and uh, and talks about um, the the incident that occurred to him. So, that that'll be an interesting read. I've never read that that storyline. Yeah, it, it's a storyline that some Spider-Man fans. Uh, looked down on. I mm. did an interview with the folks at Bleeding Cool. Uh-huh. They were a great deal with, and they did a great job presenting the material. But uh, they kind of they they touched upon the fact that there's a segment of the audience that isn't isn't enamored with that story. Yeah. And the response I gave to them was, it's it's a forum that reaches millions of people. Yeah. And whether it's totally successful, partially successful, or not successful at all is in the eye of the beholder. But at least they made an effort. Yeah. And the, the, the parallel I drew was when I was a kid in, in 1970, Spider-Man 96, 97, and 98, Stan and Gil Kane touched upon the, the problem of drug abuse. And Harry is yeah. revealed as a pill popper and, and etc. And at the time... You could not reference drugs in comic books and still get the comics code seal of approval. Right. And so those books appeared on the stands, the first books in years, to appear without a comics code label attached to it. Right. And today, you know, Stan has has later admitted, yeah, you know, he said, the government approached me and said, well, I put something in one of our books about the evils of drug abuse, and I didn't know anything about it. I kind of sort of winged it. But... As a 10-year-old kid, with all the other anti-drug messages that were, were coming through the schools and coming on TV and etc., that really resonated with mm-hmm. me. And so whether it was fully successful or fully unsuccessful didn't matter. The message had yep. impact. Yep. And so I still, I still give 
Dan and the people at the newspaper strip and the syndicate as well that, that authorized this because this was a long continuity. It goes from March uh, uh, through December of 1985. Yeah. And they deserve a lot of credit for tackling a subject like that yeah. and making the effort. Right. So, you know, uh, I, I think, yeah. you know, we have to give credit where credit's due. Uh, Spider-Man has a history of that, uh, uh, talking about drugs, etc. Have you ever read the Spider-Man versus the Prodigy? It's that does not ring a bell. Spiders, Planned Parenthood put out a book with Spider-Man in it, talking about safe sex, and it's really? Re- it's really funny to see in 2018 reading that book. <laughs> I, I bought it at a convention. It's it's a trip. Wow, Spider-Man well, versus and, the Prodigy. Yeah, and you know the reaction to this because of course this yeah. this story and the comic book Spider-Man and Power Pack that that yeah. preceded it mm-hmm. gather a lot of media attention, and I have exactly. read a lot of stories about both of them. Yeah. And it's interesting to see the media coverage because what we don't recognize today, you know, where child abuse is, is, is you know, it's a, it's a long-time topic. Right. Back then in the mid-'80s, it was nowhere near as prevalent. It was yeah. starting to really become a topic right. of, of that, that was garnering public focus. Right. And I talk about that in my introduction for Volume 5. Awesome. And so not only were they making an attempt, they were in the forefront of making an attempt. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the reaction of, the, you know, of some of this stuff is, well, uh, it, it's, we, we got a letter from some boy who said he was being abused, and we were able to get counselors there, and, and that family's going to get a little help. Mm. Well, yeah. you know... As we know today, when you're in that type of situation, in most instances, you need more than just a little help. No doubt. But, yeah. um, but uh, at the time, it was such a new phenomenon in the public conscious yeah. that people would look at that and say, they're getting a little help. See what a huge difference that made? <laughs> and yeah. it, it's all an evolutionary process. So, so it, yeah. really, it really, the reactions we look at today and go, hmm, at the time, are very important reactions right. because if you didn't have those, you mm-hmm. don't have the follow-on reactions that build on those. True, that get us to where we are today, and hopefully where we are tomorrow. When mm-hmm. we can look back, you know, hopefully for a day where this type of thing is 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 all in our past. It's like no smallpox and eradicated. Exactly. Uh, in future volumes, one of my favorite artists that's doing the strip now that's uh, on the Sundays is Alex Savick. I, uh, yeah. I've, I've interviewed him uh, in person. He's such a great guy. He he reminds me like uh, uh, Fred Kidda. Uh, he he reminds me of Romita. And his, especially his Mary Jane looks like Romita Mary Jane. So uh, I, I look forward to you doing an interview with him. Yep. Um, Alex is one of my friend Lee Weeks's. Oh, cool. So cool. Al Lee says, of course, only fabulous things about Alex. So yeah. when we get to that point, A, I know I have an inside pipeline to Alex's contact information. Yeah. And B, you know, I, I have something immediately in common with him because I'm sure we'll – We'll tell embarrassing stories about Lee to one another, we'll crack one another up, and then we'll actually get to the interview. I'm trying to think uh, of the the artists before Alex Savick and and Larry Lieber. You've got, I think, Paul Ryan. Is that right? Paul Ryan does a stint. Yes, he, he's passed away too, so he's no yes, longer with Paul us. Has, I met Paul once. Yeah, and it was very sad to hear that he had passed away. You know, Paul was a very very solid draftsman. He, he did the uh, the wedding comic. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Is there another yep. artist between? Uh, Kidda 
and that we haven't talked about? There, there is an artist you will see okay. in Volume Five. Okay. I have been I have been tagging him as well as a mystery artist in other yeah. interviews I've done. Um, and uh, once again, I'll give you a little scoop here. Uh, Dan Barry is okay. going to come in and uh, draw the strip for a while and give it a very different sensibility from anything you have seen mm. before. Is he still with us? Um, Dan Barry is not. Okay. Uh, but Dan Barry in the 1950s, 50s in the late 40s 50s mm-hmm. was sort of the guy that at DC Comics was sort of the house style. Mm. You know, it would be you know, you should, you know, you newcomer coming through the door, you should draw like Dan Barry draws. No. <laughs> they wanted people to look like Dan Barry and Dan Barry's yeah. brother Cy or Seymour as John Romita calls him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a long-time inker. He inked a lot of John's uh, romance comics at DC Comics, and he is a longtime artist of the Phantom newspaper strip. Mm. But Dan did a lot of work at DC Comics and other comics publishers before that. And then in the 1950s, he moved over to comic strips and was associated with the Flash Gordon strip for many, many years. Right. He started drawing the daily and then progressed to doing the Sunday as well when the artist who had previously been doing the Sundays. Right. Um, uh, left that strip, huh. and so uh, he had been doing that, and then uh, the chance aroused for him to do Spidey. Nice. So it's very weird to be seeing Stan Lee's name in the credits, who, of course, we automatically associate with with Marvel, mm-hmm. and then Dan Barry, a name <laughs> that I at least I associate with Flash Gordon, and I associate with. DC Comics. That's funny. Which would make you say, as far from Marvel as you can get. But Dan's take on Spider-Man is very interesting. Neat. Um, and, and it is at once recognizable and yet different from anything we've seen. So we've got Paul Ryan, Dan Barry, Larry Lieber, Alex Savick, and I think from his Facebook post, Ron Friends did some strips. Uh, I think that is probably true. Yeah. Of course, we've left out uh, inking the Sundays. Okay. Though the, the Marvelous no pun intended, mm-hmm. Joe Sinnott. Right, yeah. Another, uh, I've met Joe on three occasions, and Joe is such a fabulous guy. And of course, to me, growing mm-hmm. up when I did, Joe to me is Mr. Fantastic Four. Yeah, yeah. I lived with Joe Zinks on Jack, yeah. on Jack Kirby, on John Romita, on John Buscema, yeah. on Rich Buckler, on George Perez. He's still doing conventions, too, I think. Yes. Yeah. He in, the, in his 90s, I think, or 80s. Is. Yeah. But, uh, no, Joe is, is in his 90s, and, yeah. and Joe is just, Joe is a baseball fan, as I mm-hmm. am. Joe supports the San Francisco Giants from the days when they were the New York Giants. Right. And I'm a diehard Red Sox fan. <laughs> and so on those occasions when I get to see Joe, we start off talking baseball, and then we start talking about comics. And here in my office, the first time I met Joe in 1999 at a, at a huge convention at White Plains, mm-hmm. uh, I bought, because again, he is Mr. Fantastic Four for me, I bought a full-color, hand-colored thing headshot. Oh, nice. That, that I matted and framed and hangs here in my, in my office. So cool. Uh, that's neat. I, I still smile every time I look at it. So <laughs> I think we'd just be remiss not to, uh, not to mention if, Joe's contributions to the strip. And it, it's amusing to me because I always thought as a kid that Joe never inked a really good Spider-Man. But 
Mm. Um, things change with time. As you're we, talking we about, become more knowing. As you're talking about looking at things in your office, I'm looking right now. When I met Alex Savick, I had him do a commission for me, and it's an upside-down kiss of Mary Jane and Spider-Man. <laughs> so <laughs> it's beautiful. Uh, Very. I, uh, I've got message board questions for you. I, I originally said this would only take an hour. We're, we, you and I like to talk, so I apologize if I'm taking up more of your time. <laughs> no, that's all right. As I said, I'm in for the duration. That's not the, a problem. Uh, our first question is from Shy Town Spidey, speaking of Chicago, Illinois. Uh, his question is, uh, being the assistant editor at the Library of Com- Comics uh, and in charge of the project, you must have Spider-Man on the brain. I'm a big Spider-Man fan, and one of the things that truly appeals to me is his supporting characters. Unlike other superheroes, his cast are non-superpowered for the most part and relatable in a way. Again, I'm a big fan of Spidey, but a bigger fan of Peter and Mary Jane's relationship. So my question is, besides Spidey and these reprints, will we be seeing these beloved supporting characters, and especially Mary Jane? If yes, that's enough to make me buy the book, and what volume heavily weighs in on Mary Jane and Peter? Well, uh, I would tell... Uh, I would tell- Chi-Town Spidey, he would be joining at just the right time yeah. to be buying Volume 5 in, uh, in February or January, in early next year, and then to follow as well into Volume 6. Because uh, in Volume 5, uh, Mary Jane is going to learn something that's going to turn her world upside down. Yeah. And then in Volume 6, uh, well, there just might be wedding bells in the office. <laughs> exactly. That's actually, those strips have been print reprinted in that wedding trade paperback from the 80s that I have. So that, yeah. I've seen some of those. Uh, he also asks, uh, who is your favorite out of Spider-Man supporting characters? Well, I, I am with, I am with Shytown Spidey. Uh, Spider-Man supporting cast has always been one of the great yep. strengths. Um, I would tell you, while I, I, I certainly um, uh, understand and appreciate Mary Jane, I grew up a Gwen Stacy guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought Gwen was, was the epitome. Um, and certainly John Romita helped us all believe that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, but I would tell you that uh, in terms of the supporting characters, uh, my my emotional attachment is to J. Jonah Jameson just because he is such <laughs> nice. a perfect. Yeah. Um, and and yet the character in the supporting cast that I respect the most is Robbie Robertson. Mm. Yeah. What do you think? Does he know? Does Robbie know he's he's Spider Man? Peter Spider Man? Um, that's that's been a debate for Spider Man fans. Does he know or I does he think, not know? <laughs> I think. I like to think not, and yeah. the reason I like to think not is because Robbie, when I was reading as a boy, was good friends with Gwen's father, Captain Stacy, right. retired police captain. And, of course, as we know, uh, Captain Stacy knew. So yeah. I like to think that was a secret Captain Stacy kept, yeah. and I like to think there's the contrast between, there's greater contrast between Captain Stacy and Robbie yeah. if Robbie doesn't know. Right. Our next question is from the UK. Anime Hunter is his uh, name, and uh, he says, First, I'd like to say I love your books, and I own the first four volumes of the collection. I recently pre-ordered the fifth. I will most likely order the rest as they come out. Only My only request would be, please don't take long in releasing them. <laughs> I, I'm with them on that. <laughs> uh, my question is, uh, when One More Day happened, the one and only Stan Lee decided to do the same in the newspaper, for which I was very thankful, was temporary, 
what I was wondering is, what type of reception did that decision receive and how much impact did it have that only one year later it was then put back the way it was and what happened in that year was simply a Dallas 1986 dream. (laughs) (laughs) So he was single again for like a year in the strips, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that is correct. Yeah. So, Uh, yeah, I mean, um, there, there was... A, a thought, and I'm not sure whether it came organically out of the creative process or whether it was something that was a, a corporate decision that said yeah. they're going to split up in the comics, we should split them up in the newspaper strip as well. But I really think, uh, and again, this is, is largely conjecture on my part, but I really think Stan liked the synergy of having the married couple. Yeah, And so... Uh, again, the, the newspaper audience and the comic strip uh, and the comic book audience have a certain overlap, but but not an, a, a total overlap. Yeah. And so I think that uh, that the theory came down that Stan would like it better if they were still married, and the audience would be not upset to see them still married. So why don't we put them back together? And uh, then the question became, how do you do it? And and, and just yeah. as uh, as Anime Hunter says, well, it worked in the Dallas TV show. Why won't it work for us, too? Put, put Peter in the shower and, and uh, have Mary Jane wake up or whatever from the dream. That's right. Exactly. Uh, and the comic strip is uh, many people who are still 10 years later upset that they split there or they erased the marriage. They often praise the comic strip for still keeping the marriage. So mm-hmm. this is the one uh, avenue, or I guess Renew Your Vows, the book, too, but... Right, exactly. Uh, you can but, still have a married Spider-Man every day in your newspaper. Uh, also, exactly Anim- right. Anime Hunter also asks about, uh, is there any concern that you might miss a couple strips in when you're re- uh, reprinting them? Or, well, or have you already checked is, all, all the archives? Are they all there? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, the, the good news is uh, the Billy Ireland Cartoon Library and Museum has an extensive collection, and there are... Um, huge, huge uh, newspaper strip fans, and so in that collector's market, uh, if we are ever missing anything, as we are sometimes in some of our books, we reach out through that, that network of collectors that we know, yeah. and we do a, a pretty good job of being able, I would say a very good job, that, those folks come through very, very great way for us, and we have filled uh, uh, more several handfuls of holes wow. in various strips uh, with the kind contributions of... Uh, of folks from uh, you know the the newspaper collectors network. Right. When you started the th- the project, or did you did you ask them? Do you have any holes in the collection, or are they all there? I wonder. Uh, well, we um, we went in ourselves and said, yeah. you know, we knew what they had. We knew they had something for Spider Man, so we made yeah. a trip there, and we started um, asking them to pull their Spider Man stuff out of the mm-hmm. sacks. Yeah. And so we were able to assess what we were going to need for the first, uh, I think it was for the first six full volumes. And we nice. said, well, at the time, we said, we don't know how this is going to sell. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. And we know we'll always be back. I, um, Dean Mullaney and I usually go back to, to uh, the Billy Ireland probably about every, you know, 18 months to two years. So we we kind of know that we can always make a future trip and be able mm-hmm. to look ahead at what they've got. And if we yeah. find that there are any holes, we'll find out soon enough so that we can reach out through the various networks that we, you know, the various collectors that we uh, we are in contact with 
and uh, and look to plug those holes. Nice. So we're we're pretty confident that we'll be able to always get our hands on what we need. And like we said earlier in the conversation, the uh, this is from the seventies. It's not from the thirties, like like Superman. So right. it's fairly recent, <laughs> relatively. Right, and so, and by yeah. then, uh, the the syndicates and the collective yeah. communities and such, they there was more of an effort to uh, to preserve material than yeah. perhaps there was because back in the the 30s, 40s, and even into the 50s and, and early 60s, this was all disposable stuff. You know, yeah. it, it was just like, yeah, this is what you line your birdcage with. <laughs> so there was never really yeah. any thought that that decades later there would be a a market for collecting this material and making yeah. it available to new audiences. Anime Hunter says he also has a place in his heart because the strip started the year he was born, 1977. So there you go. <laughs> uh, Mr. Metz has a question. Why has it taken so long to get this material collected given the caliber of talent involved? It started with <laughs> Stan Lee and John Romita, for God's sakes. That's what he well, says. Well, <laughs> I, I, I echo that, that, that admiration for Stan yeah. and for John. Uh, they, they, are, they, they have given me a lot of reading entertainment through the years. No doubt. It's, it's, it, it, for Spider-Man fans, I think this is the only really area, maybe the 70s live-action show, that people are not that familiar with. I mean, right. this is a really a niche Spider-Man th- thing that people... If unless you picked up the paper 365 days, you don't know this story. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. Uh, he also asks, "Are you familiar with the take on the newspaper Spider-Man in the Spider-Verse comic book? Do you know what happened there?" I have to admit, I do not. Well, the uh, there was a story uh, called Spider-Verse, and it involved every Spider-Man from every continuity in one big story, and these bad guys were trying to kill all the various Spider-Men. They got to the universe that houses the Spider-Man newspaper strip, and he kept repeating himself. Like he was recapping, like the previous newspaper strip. <laughs> so so the bad guy was like, why are you repeating yourself? I j- you just said that. So it was really, it was kind of a funny little deal. So... Um, uh, Mr. Metz's uh, other questions. By the way, this was the material that first exposed me to Spider-Man, through though that would be in the early 1990s. So this series of collections is quite meaningful to him. So well, really and I, awesome. I totally resonate with that because yeah. uh, when I go back, like I have uh, a complete run of the first 100 Marvel Masterworks, and then I nice. switched over. I had the sequential numbering. And at issue number 100, I switched over to the black and silver trade. Yeah. So I started collecting things by series. And I now basically have what I think of as my, I am one more volume of the Hulk away from having what I really think of as my Marvel Universe from the mm. 60s and 70s. Nice. Between hardcovers and either the Masterworks or the, the Omnibus volumes, like the Howard the Duck Omnibus, the Man-Thing Omnibus, nice. the Tomb of Dracula Omnibuses. And yeah. so... I totally get the fact that when I read one of those, especially you know some of those those issues that that meant a lot to me as a kid, um, you know the drug issues and, mm-hmm. and the run up through through number one hundred, um, Fantastic Four in the the seven the, the issues seventies and eighties, which again is about where I jumped on. Mm-hmm. I came to the Avengers one month before the debut of the Vision. Ah, there you so, go. So from there up through issue number 100, obviously, means a lot to me. And so when I read those Marvel Masterworks again, mm-hmm. 
uh, I I still can't judge those those stories exactly um, with a with an intellectual eye yeah. because they transport me back to where I was as a kid. That's what. So I get that visceral reaction rather than than an intellectual reaction. When I opened so up, when I opened up volume three of the newspapers and I saw the Fred Kidda artwork that I haven't seen since the early '80s when I was a kid, that it's amazing how that just takes you back. To yep, sitting totally on the sitting on the kitchen floor with the the Sunday comics in front of you, I mean that's just it, <laughs> it takes you back. Absolutely. Steg- Absolutely, Stegron is his name. He's the dinosaur. Don't mess with his tail. That's right. <laughs> uh, any chance we could get collections of other old Marvel strips like Howard the Duck, Conan, and Hulk? Hulk especially, I'd be interested in. Well, we have talked to Marvel about. Uh, I I just saw in the recent. Diamond previews that Marvel appears to have re- reacquired the rights to their Conan yep. comic books yep. because they're going to do a giant Conan omnibus um, carrying basically all the Barry Smith material in it. Right. And so I, I don't know whether they have reacquired the rights to the newspaper strip, but but I believe if they if they have not, then Conan resides with uh, the Conan Properties folks rather than yeah. with Marvel. So that's an entirely side deal, although we have made inquiries about the Conan strip. We have also talked to Marvel about Howard the Duck and and the Hulk. Um, And right now, Marvel has not wanted to... Let's just leave it this way. It's not just Marvel's issue, so I don't really want to say that. We have not found the the time to be right to strike a deal on those strips. Mm-hmm. However, we continue to maintain talks about them. Nice. And, you know, I think Marvel is happy with what we're doing on Spider-Man. We are certainly happy working with Marvel. They've been, as I said before, excellent to deal with. So the relationship is good. The possibilities still exist, but we haven't found the synergy to make that work yet. However, I would love to do it because I am a huge Steve Gerber, Gene Colan fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a I'm a Howard the Duck fan from that original period, and I would love to bring that material back and write the introductory material, nice. the introductory text uh, for for that type of of stuff because uh, you know that just Steve Gerber is a talent that does not get yeah. enough recognition and due in the modern age. My- very very amazing talent. My second favorite hero is the Hulk. So I remember reading the Hulk comic strip in the the newspaper and it was very much like the 70s TV show, if I remember correctly. It didn't last very long, if I remember correctly, too. I mean, it runs... You know, certainly, it it doesn't run decades, but it has... Is it 10 years, maybe? Yeah, I would say in that... Rounded up, rounded down, about ten years. Yeah, and you know, Larry Lieber says that is some of the most the, the material he's most proud of. Oh wow, that'd be a great. Yeah, thing. He, you know, he drew a batch of of the Hulk before he went over to Spider Man, and uh, and actually wrote some of the continuity as well. Nice. And and you know, so he said he had a great great time doing the Hulk strip. I'm not familiar with any of the artists on the Hulk except Larry Lieber. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see, Spidey Dude. Uh, how easy was it to procure the archives? You, we've kind of already talked about that. It's yeah, pretty that, easy. That museum, yeah. Uh, Quilsniv from the universe is where he's located. <laughs> uh, well, that's a good place to that's, be. That's where I'm from too. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. How diff? 
different? Is it collecting a newspaper comic from collecting single issues into a trade paperback? Is there some kind of difference in how it's collected and formatted, given that they have to reprint years' worth of material in these collections? Well, um, yes, because the dimensions of a comic strip are different than the dimensions of a right. comic book. So if you looked at one of our Spider-Man collections versus, uh, you know, as we said, it's done in sort of portrait oblong style, so... You know, you 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 read it the long way and hold it the short way, whereas it's just the reverse in a collection of comic books. Yeah. You you hold it the long way facing you, and you between you hold it between your hands in the short way. Yeah. Um, because the dimensions of of the artwork are different. Um, as far as how you actually put all the the strips together, I suppose it's a little easier to put a trade paperback together because you have. Mm-hmm. 20 pages or 22 pages or 30 pages, however long the comics themselves run, uh, still around 22 pages, I would suspect, in most instances, although certain things run differently. Yeah. I just read Spider-Man 800, and that certainly is, is a, yeah. not a 22-page story. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, you have them all sequentially, uh, you know, collected by comic, so you have a high degree of confidence that all 22 pages uh, are going to fall in sequential order. Whereas we've got every individual strip that we have to make sure we place in the, in the correct order, right. because you don't suddenly want to do an oops and reprint a strip, you know, print a strip twice and drop a strip inadvertently or something yeah. like that. So, yeah. So maybe our proofreading is a little bit more difficult than uh, mm-hmm. doing a trade paperback. Right. But you know, the process is is very similar but not identical. I think is the way right. I describe. Uh, Adam S. from San Diego, California, said it's pretty cool that these strips are being collected since people probably aren't as familiar with them as they are with the main comics. I haven't read a lot of these, but I'm interested in this upcoming volume since Mary Jane apparently learns Peter's secret. So do you have a favorite storyline from the strips, and is there one that you think is so objectively good that it's a must-read for Spider-Man fans? What's your favorite? Well... Uh, I think one of my favorites, and I was kind of pleased that John Romita told me it was one of his favorites, too. <laughs> There's a strip from uh, from the early days of, of the series where the kingpin is out on parole. Oh, yes. And he winds up taking <laughs> residence in a, in a townhouse in, in Manhattan, in a neighborhood in Manhattan. And it turns out that his neighbor... <laughs> is disgraced ex-president Richard Nixon, and that's so funny. The, the kingpin and his mob—they're—they're they're, the mobsters that are surrounding the kingpin—are a little antsy that there's all these <laughs> secret service guys, you know, hanging around in their neighborhood, because obviously they're protecting the ex-president. Because even though he was the only president to have to resign from office because he yeah. would have been a, impeached for obstructing justice if he hadn't been. Uh, uh, hadn't resigned. Uh, it's just kind of. Uh, I just think that's such a clever <laughs> twist. And then, of course, the, the kingpin is launching a plot after that. Uh, you know, yeah. they springboard out of that, and and the kingpin's wife Vanessa is involved, and so it has all the familiar resonances that I think of from kingpin stories uh, of my youth, mm-hmm. and then it has this nice contemporary twist to it of the kingpin and Nixon being neighbors. <laughs> so that that always just just totally I think that's just such a stand yeah. concept that Ramita did such a brilliant job of bringing to life that that just always sticks in my mind as uh, as as one of my my personal favorites and I would tell you 
Um, in this volume five, I do think the the child abuse story is really something that that should be read. Uh, whether you like the idea of Peter Parker as an abused child or not, and I'll put my hand up and tell you, I'm not totally sold on that idea. Yeah. But the context in which they're doing it, and the the courage, I think, and I don't think that's too strong a word, the courage of Marvel saying, our most popular hero is going to be identified with this social problem. Yeah. And I just think that's something that, whether you love it, whether you hate it, you should read it and be aware of it and and sort of look at it objectively and sort of judge it on its own merit. Yeah. I think the the Nixon one is in volume two, is that right? Yeah. That's, that's you're talking about. Yeah. I, I can just see the Kingpin My neighbor is a crook. <laughs> Nixon. My my neighbor is also a crook, yeah. <laughs> you know, yes, I've done a hard time, but at least I didn't have to be pardoned. Exactly. <laughs> the Kingpin has the Nixon as a neighbor. That's so funny. Bruce, I appreciate you taking the time for this. This has been a fun interview, fun conversation. Brad, I, I, I appreciate you having me on board. I appreciate yeah. the uh, the questions from uh, from uh, all your uh, your contacts and your audience. Yeah. Uh, those were an excellent set of questions, and I hope I haven't bored anybody <laughs> too terribly bad. No, you've, you've done great. So uh, look in January, February for Volume 5. That would be great. 